This is Kate Mulgrew, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... You know, the people are still, there are still debates on whether or not she actually designed the creature from the Black Lagoon or not. So taking people along on that journey, and like you said, peeling back the curtain, helped me be like, look, look how difficult it was. Look at all this incredible woman who everybody should know, at least if they're a cinephile or a monster fan. Look what this guy's decision did to her story. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and at theroarbots.com. And you can find us wherever you find podcasts. That's right. I said anywhere. Anywhere you find podcasts, you can find us. Test me. Sherry, hello. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really well. Um... I, we're going to jump right into this because this week I was really excited about this one. And I need to preface this by saying, like, I get a lot of books delivered to my house every week. Um, I, at a certain point, it feels like work. I look at the pile of to be read. I look at the number of packages that get delivered. I'm like, oh, I have to read these books. It doesn't matter if I love them or not or if I'm really interested or excited about them. At a certain point, I'm like, oh, it's just kind of like work, you know. So I was super excited when you told me about this book that you read, um, and it had it tied into my interests, which are, uh, you know, old school monster movies. And I was like, you know and, what? And Disney animation. And Disney animation. And I was like, you know what? That book sounds all kinds of rad. I'm going to go get it from the library and just read it for pleasure. And like, no commitments, no nothing. I'm just going to read it and not have to worry about writing a review or interviewing the author. And lo and behold, I enjoyed it <laughs> so much. I was like, you know what? We got to get the author on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a really so the book is The Lady from the Black Lagoon, and uh, it is about a the designer for the creature from the Black Lagoon. Her name uh, Millicent Patrick. Uh, although, if you are searching back for her, uh, she was married a couple times. So, depending and, on what era of her career you're looking for her in, she may have had a different last name. Yeah, and she also which, just went by other names as well. She not did. Unrelated to her marriages. She, she, that was part of the issue that uh, Mallory, the author, said she had when researching her, is that she went by so many different names, it made it very difficult to track her down. Yes. And um, so, related to this is that there is a... Documentary documentary series coming out on Disney Plus called Ink and Paint, which is about um, all these female animators who worked at Disney who were never credited for any of their work. Uh, Millicent Patrick was one of those animators. She animated um, the the demon in Fantasia, completely uncredited. And we and, sh- we should also, I mean, you mentioned the Ink and Paint documentary. Yes. We don't know for sure that Millicent is mentioned in the documentary. She Correct. is included in the book that came out. In the out. book. Yeah. But when I was looking for her in the book, she's listed by 
her married name at the time, which is not Patrick. I can't remember what it is, mm-hmm. but I had to do a little detective work to find her in the book. Perfect segue, because this book, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, it is, I mean, it is a biography of Millicent, but it is unlike many biographies that you may have read. I mean, it's 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 part biography, part detective story on the author, on Mallory's part, from her perspective, in, in tracking down Millicent's life and piecing, putting all the pieces together, and it's part her own memoir as well. Memoir, yeah. Um, it's just, it was it's like a it's you know we we've talked to a lot of authors who have books that are kind of hard to classify and hard to to pigeonhole, and this I think is one of them. I mean, obviously it's a biography, but it is it's more than that. Yeah, and you know there are still um, Mallory works herself in. Uh, horror the horror films which you know there continue to be a lot of parallels between Millicent Patrick working in that field and women working in that field now there's been some progress but mm-hmm. not enough yeah. so a lot <laughs> so, of the issues um, that Millicent had to deal with as being a woman at the in the forefront of her industry or disappearing in the ink and paint department of Disney, but still doing a, a crap ton of work. You know, a lot of those issues are still very prevalent in the industry today. And Mallory herself, as you're saying, as a woman in the industry, faces many of these same issues. So it's sort of like, look at how far we've come, but not really. Yeah. And, you know, it's certainly something I identify with as as a woman who writes about comics. Yeah. So it was interesting for me to talk to a woman in another creative field who has had very similar experiences and then look back 50 years, 60 years and see that as much progress as we like to think we've made mm-hmm. and we definitely have made some, there's so much more to be made than you might think looking at it from the outside. Yeah. Um, and we, we probably should explain. We keep talking about Disney and the ink and paint department, but the book is called The Lady from the Black Lagoon because Millicent was the designer of the creature from the Black Lagoon, the original film, um, 1956, mm-hmm. I think. I'm just I'm pulling that out of my out of my head because I that sounds about right. Um, but when they were you know sort of tr- when Universal was trying to revive their their monster movie um, tradition, uh, and they came out with one of the best all time classic monsters was the creature the Gill Man. Um, Millicent actually was lead slash well she wasn't sole designer but she was lead designer on the creature mask. And uh, what happened was over the years, she kind of, um, her her association with that design and that character were scrubbed from history because of a Westmore. <laughs> and if, if you know anything about movies and, and, and makeup design and, and costuming, um, the Westmores are one of those dynasty names that you hear. But Bud Westmore figures very prominently into... Um, Millicent's story and he was by by Mallory's account <laughs> and that's all the the only account that I really know a not very pleasant man um, and he was incredibly jealous and incredibly uh, egotistical and he took all the credit for the work that basically everybody under him did 
Uh, and the result of that was that Mal- um, Millicent's work on the creature was basically lost to mm-hmm. history and, and to um, the history of cinema for decades. Uh, and and you, she talks about this in the book, but even today there are still people who doubt her involvement and think that all this, the photos of her holding the mask or working on the, 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 the mask were just publicity shots because she was a pretty face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really, Mallory's book is is the f- first one that really traces the lineage properly. Yeah. Um, and also, she, you know, she was able ultimately to speak with some of Millicent's family members. Yeah, which she, was a big deal. She did a lot of work. She definitely put the mileage in for this book. She did a yeah. lot of work, and that, like I said, it comes across in the book in the story. Like she tells it, sort of like from her own perspective as like as a detective and putting everything together and following the trail and following the clues. Um, All right, we're going to get into it. The book is the lady from the black lagoon. The author is Mallory Almera. We talked to her about the book, about Millicent, about working in the industry and about monster movies in general and a lot of other stuff. It's a great conversation. Like I said, this was a book I read just for fun, hoping to not have to do anything with it. And I enjoyed (laughs) it so much. I reached out and I, I needed to get Mallory on the show. And here we are. Um, thank you guys so much for coming back week after week thank you for hitting subscribe thank you for following thank you for being fans we love you Um, if you don't subscribe please click subscribe whatever app you use to listen to to podcasts we would really appreciate it Um, until next time I am Jamie Green you can find me on Twitter at The Roarbots and I'm Sherry Sondheimer you can find me on Twitter at SW Sondheimer and on Instagram at irate underscore Corvus And here's our conversation with Mallory O'Mara. Enjoy. Um, I wanted to start off before we dive into The Lady from the Black Lagoon in a little bit of depth. But what about, and you talk about this a little bit in the book, but I want to just sort of pick your brain. But what was it about horror as a genre that first drew you in as a fan? A few things, actually. Uh, one, I'm a super anxious person, and <laughs> watching horror movies and being afraid of something that isn't real actually is like a anxiety vacation for me, even when I was a little kid. Uh, just being afraid of something that isn't in the real world felt great for my brain. Um, but also, I'm really attracted to how deeply you can get into Uh, taboo things in the horror genre I mean there's so many big stories you can tell in that place with monsters and stuff I mean monsters are just a walking metaphor for our fears and insecurities and stuff and so it is you know a lot of people dismiss horror as something that's juvenile and just sort of cheesy and it definitely can be that but it also can tell some of the most important stories I mean some of the earliest tales we've ever told you know from thousands thousands of years ago are all monster stories so there's something just really important about it that always struck me as uh interesting and fascinating and something that always wanted me always made me want to learn more yeah do you remember the first horror movie that you saw well, technically, it was Fantasia. Uh, oh, yeah. A lot of people, rec- <laughs> a lot of people remember Fantasia. You know, the magical brooms and the dancing animals with tutus on. But as a small goth child, <laughs> I, you know, I watched all that and I really liked it. But when I got to the end of the film, the, the penultimate segment, Night, Night on Bald Mountain, with this big demon and all these flying ghosts and witches, 
I fell in love with it. It was really the first time art had made me think about it after I consumed it. You know, when you're a kid, you're just sort of like a goldfish and you're just consuming things and not really thinking about them afterwards. And Fantasia, at least the Night on Bald Mountain sequence, was the first time as a small kid I thought about it afterwards. And I was like, oh, I think this is what art is supposed to do. (laughs) Is there... um... So I, I am a fan of horror. I love monster movies, uh, but I I tend toward the tell her, like, tell her about tell her about the Friday the Thirteenth thing. Oh, <laughs> um, we did. You can t- say it in a second. <laughs> um, <laughs> is it, so, but I tend toward the the thriller slash horror. You know, not not slashers so much. I don't like. Um, I don't like blood just for blood's sake. You know, I don't like what they call the torture porn, like Saw movies. I can't watch those. Is he there says a- that, but we watched all of the Halloween movies together in three they're weeks not, yeah. last year. Actually, those aren't actually that gory, They're though, not. When you, when you actually watch them. Yeah, I mean, there's blood, but the, and he kills a lot of people, but they're not... I wouldn't call them, like, over the top with gore, you know? There's yeah, blood, there's not gore. especially compared to films that you see nowadays that can be really right. just over the top. Right. But is there a type of horror that you won't or can't watch? Like, Actually, I like those, but I can't watch body. I don't do well with body horror stuff. Uh, I'm sort of at, like, a... If you if both of your horror tastes had a baby, that would be me. Uh, I'm not big on slashers. Uh, it's just really I don't have a lot against it. It just doesn't do anything for me. Um, I'm much more interested in more supernatural stuff. Uh, I'm also really weird about body horror. There's certain types of body horror that are a little more fantastical and over the top that I really like, like the sort of Clive Barker, Steven Cronenberg kind of stuff. But straight up you know, as people say, torture porn or body horror. I have such a weird thing about my own bodily control that stuff like that really, really freaks me out. And, uh, but I, there are incredible creators in all those genres. It just doesn't give me what I'm looking for in the horror genre. Yeah. Do you find that the horror world, and again, this is something that you, you touch on in the book. Um, do you find that it's still predominantly male dominated? I do actually, you know, there, there, it's really great because the conversation's starting to change, um, and big ships turn slowly. So there's, um, there's a lot of, you know, change that needs to happen systematically. You know, all the people at film festivals are starting to make sure they look for more women. People at production companies are starting to make sure they look for more women, but it's that sort of thing where there's a statistic where a lot of people if there's like 30% of a room is women and 70% of the room is male, uh, people will perceive it as there being more women than men. And I think because there's been such a dearth of female creators who actually get hired in the genre for so long that we see like one woman who makes a horror movie and everyone's like, well, look, they're taking over the genre now. You know, there's, (laughs) there are a lot of women that are finally getting hired, which is amazing. But most of the big movies you see every year that are you know made by big studios are are created by men. So even though the conversation is there, the actual numbers of films that are being produced and women that are getting hired is not there yet. Do you would you say that there's been a visible change since Millicent's time or like you said just that the conversation is starting to happen but the actual change is much more slow? 
Uh, it depends on what part of the industry you are, we're talking about. I definitely think that in the past couple of years, there's been a lot more female directors that have gotten work. And when I'm, when I'm talking about these things, I will always want to say get hired because there's always been a lot of women who are in the, who are interested in the genre. It's, we don't need to attract women to the genre. We need to hire them. <laughs> so, uh, but I have, yes, I have seen a lot of, ba- a lot of changes in that regard. And in the same way that, you know, there's been like scores and scores of women who want to get into the exact industry that Millicent worked in, which is monster design, whether or not those women are getting hired is a different story. You know, there's still, there has not been a female designed big monster for a major motion picture uh, that has been released by a big studio since Millicent's time. You know, we have new Godzilla movies. We had new predator movies. We have all these new, you know, uh, big monster films and these big franchises, but they're still all designed by men. Do you think that the public will ever be ready to embrace female monsters as readily as male ones? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, we just got to give it to them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to dig into the creature a little bit and and your book. Um, But the other classic, quote unquote, classic universal monsters, Dracula, the mummy, Frankenstein, they have been rebooted and remade so many times I've lost count. Um, but the creature really hasn't. Uh, he kind of remains this anomaly. And aside from The Shape of Water, which isn't really a remake of Creature, it was just obviously very much inspired by, why have we not seen a modern-day creature? Oh, well, they've tried. <laughs> they're, they're, that reboot has been kicking around Hollywood for decades. Um, I think... It's uh, a number of things because Creature from the Black Lagoon is a little bit different than a lot of the other classic universal monsters. One, he's really the biggest, you know, sci-fi one. I guess you could say Frankenstein is too, but he's more of a science fiction action adventure movie than the rest of them. Uh, The tone of him is a little bit different um, and they just have never been able to successfully get a script that is satisfactory off the ground. And I'm not saying that some of the other ones have been satisfactory. There is one that I uh, am referring to that I will not name, but I'm sure your listeners can probably guess what it is. A recent uh, Universal Monster movie uh, that had got a lot of money behind it that tried to be an action-adventure movie. Um, but it just ne- has never happened. And I can't say that I'm sad about that. <laughs> um, yeah, are you? I'm sure you're referring to the one that killed the Dark Universe. Yeah. <laughs> Although I will say I'm extremely excited about Lee Winnell's The Invisible Man starring oh, Elizabeth yeah. Moss that's coming out in February. That yeah. very much excites me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the way to go, right? To take the 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 character and the general idea, just use it as a seed, you know, and completely, yes. completely reimagine it. And I think yes. the problem with that other movie is that they didn't really reimagine it very far. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, that that's the thing is that at the core of all these universal monster movies, they're not, you know, I mean, the creature is sort of an action film, but at the core of them, they all have a really intense story and metaphor, you know, and the uh, invisible man, this like horror of, of um, not being able to see something or being disappeared, like that's really at the heart of that story. Um and seeing uh, somewhat a, dir- a horror director like Lee Winnell really taking it in a, f- a really fascinating direction, like that's the kind of stuff that I hope to see more of. The 
the lady from the Black Lagoon, what I loved about it, well, lots of things that I loved about it, but is Thank that you. it's <laughs> it's so hard to classify. Like obviously it's a biography, but it's also kind of a mystery. It's kind of a detective story. It's part memoir for you. Was that just sort of a natural result of the research process and what you learned about her, about the movie, about the industry, about yourself as you went? Or was that intentional from the beginning? It was absolutely not intentional. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it was also the reason it was very difficult to sell in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just, the, the book really started out as a straightforward biography. And um, as I was doing this research, I realized a couple of things. One, I realized that I needed to give people a reason to care about her because it's one of those things where if nobody knows who she is, why, why should they care? So in the only thing, the easiest way I knew of to get people to care about her was to show her why I cared about her. And so I started giving, you know, showing them why, you know, writing about why she matters so much to me. And that kind of evolved into bringing people along on my research journey, because what better way to show uh, you know, how a woman was purposefully, you know, buried in history than to show people how difficult it was to unearth that legacy. So it was sort of proving my point as I went. Yeah. And the, you know, it just sort of developed from there. Um, the structure of the book was very different before I sold it to my incredible editor, Peter Joseph. He's the one who kind of wanted to swirl both of our stories together. And it just kind of went from there. Now I kind of, I, I describe it as Julie and Julia, but for monsters. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that. I mean, you've also, you pull back the curtain a little bit on that research process and about what is, it takes to write a biography, you know? I mean, clearly you had probably more difficulty finding information about Millicent than somebody who's writing a biography of, like, Abraham Lincoln, you know? For sure. But, but you know, it's so rare... I don't read a ton of biographies, but I feel like it's so it's so rare to to see a book where the author inserts themselves into the process and says, like, look, this is what I had to do. Like, I had to go to the Mormon church and pay their fee to get information, <laughs> you know, or I had to go to the graveyard or I had to go do this. And you just don't see that as part of the process in most books. Well, it also served to help illustrate you know Millicent's legacy was stolen from her when she was alive and I wanted to take people along on this journey because people don't realize you know how how long-standing the effects of a decision like that have you know her the, the man who took the credit for her work you know I wanted to show people how that reverberated down through the decades you know all the way to six decades later like how difficult it was for me to find information on her like one terrible decision that a man made in the 1950s led to me basically having al almost nothing to go on you know when I started working on the project she didn't even have a wikipedia page you know the people are still there are still debates on whether or not she actually designed the creature from the Black Lagoon or not. So taking people along on that journey and like you said, peeling back the curtain helped me be like, look, look how difficult it was. Look at all this incredible woman who everybody should know, at least if they're a cinephile or a monster fan. Look what this guy's decision did to her story. Right. If, I mean, if you read the book, you know, you're meeting up and connecting with Gwen um, is sort of like the turning point of of finding out information about her, and I'm sure every a lot of the information that came before that point in the book was a result of 
you sitting down with her and going through those tubs of information. But if you had never connected with her, do you think that you would have been able to get a complete enough picture of Millicent's life to even write the book? I would have been able to write the book, but it wouldn't have been a good book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> up until connecting with those people, um, I, I had I was starting to get a really good sense of what Millicent's career was like, but I really didn't have a sense of what she was like as a person and what her personality really was like. Because, you know, if you read the book, you know that Millicent Patrick was very big on facades uh, and creating a persona that helped her navigate Hollywood. And up until that point, I was on the outside looking in on that. So I never really got to see underneath it. And that's some of the most important parts of characterizing her and learning who she was as as a human, as a friend, as a wife, um, all, all of those things. So it, I mean, I... It would have been a sh- it would have not have been a good book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when Disney Plus did one of their big uh, show drop announcement things a couple months ago, they mentioned that um, there's a documentary called Ink and Paint. Yeah, my friend Mindy's doing that. Are you in it? Did no. they come to you? No. No. Is Millicent included? I don't know. <laughs> <gasps> I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I talked Mindy. Mindy Johnson uh, wrote the book Ink and Paint, which is a, a history of mm-hmm. the female animators and women who worked behind Disney's animation. And um, Millicent is in Mindy's book. Uh, I helped with that. And Mindy and I had a very, you know, chocolate in your peanut butter, peanut butter in your, my chocolate moment when we met each other because she knew everything about Millicent's work over at Disney, but nothing about the rest of her life. And I was the, the the complete opposite. I didn't know what she did at Disney, but I had all this other biographical information. So we really helped each other out. Um, I'm really excited for the Ink and Paint series, uh, but I have not yet been contacted. So I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have lines on any... So since you know Mindy, are there any other um, female animators that you're thinking about potentially writing about? Not an animator, actually, but there is another woman who worked on a very, very famous monster that I am interested in doing a biography about. Yay! <laughs> I can't. I cannot tell you who it is. So. Um, oh, hope- we're we're used to that. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Hopefully, the research process will be a little bit easier. Or are you setting yourself up for another challenge? I am definitely setting myself up for another <laughs> oh, challenge. No. And that's actually part of the reason why I haven't been working on it. And one, I'm just um, writing a biography of somebody is sort of like being an external hard drive for their life. And um, it was very, writing Lady from the Black Lagoon was a very emotional process. Uh, right now I'm working, I've already sold my next book, which is another nonfiction, but it is not a biography and it's been a lot easier. So I, I think I need like a little bit of time yeah. <laughs> and to get to sort of emotionally brace myself to jump into it again. You, uh, in the book, you talk about your Millicent tattoo several times, um, but you never show it. <laughs> and you don't include I kept hoping like in the last chapter there would finally be like this big reveal there'd be a picture of it and it just never showed up and it's such a tease and I'm dying to see it can you at least well, de- describe it <laughs> well uh, trust me we tried we really really tried uh, I will say uh, it is very difficult to photograph a forearm mm-hmm. uh, it is very very difficult to photograph a piece of art that is not on a flat surface uh, I am a human so I am not a flat surface uh, so it's very difficult to get a high enough quality photo of a tattoo like that to put it like that's good enough to put in a book. Right. 
the next best thing is the guy who designed the tattoo, uh, an artist by the name of Matt Buck, and uh, put the tattoo on me, did the book cover. Oh, oh I, cool. didn't, I didn't realize that. That's amazing. Yes. So it's the next best thing. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the tattoo is very similar to the book cover, but it's uh, Millicent with the creature behind her, and he's kind of like hugging her from behind. Oh. Uh, there, but that is one of the number one complaints that people have is that the t- <laughs> picture of the tattoo is not in the book. But trust me, folks, we really, really tried. And we had one photo that the tattoo artist actually took himself right after I got the tattoo done. And it's just it's just not high enough quality. Yeah. It looks kind of wonky because it's on a curved surface and it just doesn't look good. <laughs> uh. But I, that's when I do signings most of the time that's one of the first things out of people's mouths is oh my god can i please see the tattoo and i'm always happy to oblige well it's good to know that i'm not alone then i thought maybe that was just me being weird no well, no no no, no. <laughs> jamie you should be used to that from bad pictures of my tattoos oh yeah sherry is a walking canvas she's covered in tattoos and she <laughs> every time she gets one updated or added to she shares pictures and it's kind of hard to tell like what body part she's showing us but... <laughs> yeah then you know sherry then you know exactly the struggle it's just you know if i had gotten it on my back or something that was more flat it would be different but it's my mm-hmm. left forearm and it's really tough to photograph yeah i'm getting my right calf done right now so yeah i try to update them every time and they're like is that is that your leg or (laughs) yeah it's the struggle (laughs) so you have you have a lot of tattoos and as a woman who has tattoos i always notice when other women do as well and i'm always curious if obviously individual tattoos have a lot of meaning but is there a meaning for you of sort of the tapestry as a whole? Sort of. You mean like why I get tattoos or are all, Oh yeah. Um, this actually circles back a little bit to why I have a hard time with body horror being a woman who lives in the society. Uh, I, a a lot of us struggle to feel like we have control over our own bodies a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And when I started getting tattooed when I was 18, I found that getting tattooed gave me a sense of control over the external parts of my body anyway, that was really cathartic. Uh, I also just really love getting tattooed. I love being tattooed. I love the way that it looks. Um, I have a rough sort of theme. Everything on my, the right half of my body is from books and everything on the left is from other things. Uh, but it's like just a weird thing, like pattern that I started and I'll probably continue until I don't have any more room to get tattooed. (laughs) But I was having a very similar conversation with the artist who's who's doing my the tattoo on my leg. Um, and it's interesting because I've been primarily tattooed by a, a husband and wife team, which has been really interesting. Um, she did my arms and he's doing my legs. So hopefully not at the same time. No, not at the same <laughs> time. <laughs> um, but yeah, for for a really similar reason. And Jason and I were actually talking about, you know, how being a woman, he's like, the guys come in and they're just doing it. But for women, it's so important, you know, to have that, that degree of control over your body. Yeah. And it's definitely a choice to be made. You know, when mm-hmm. I started getting tattooed, a lot of people are like, well, no one's ever going to marry you. You're never going to have a job. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's a decision. And, you know, for the rest of your life, you will have to be, um, justifying that to people mm-hmm. and it's um it's a choice <laughs> but i it's something that I, I really wanted to do and i want to keep doing and i um and you know clearly i mean getting my millicent patrick tattooed 
made was the impetus for writing this book. So it's working out for me so so far. <laughs> the big one I got was, uh, "What are you going to do when you're 90?" I'm like, "Hang out at the nursing home with all my tattooed friends." <laughs> also, being tattooed, not being tattooed, doesn't stop you from getting wrinkles. So I'm not sure why everyone <laughs> thinks that we're all going to get to 90 and be like super hot and right? and wrinkle free. I mean, I'm just going to look just as old as everybody else who's my age. Yeah. <laughs> So I, um, well, hang oh. on, hang on. So I, I have no tattoos, um, but it kind of blows my mind that there's still that, um, I guess, discrimination against, you know, somebody who has tattoos that you guys would hear things like that, hear comments like you, you're never going to meet somebody, you're never going to get a job. And I noticed in the book, Mallory, you, you do say that a few times, like when you would go into a meeting, you would intentionally wear long sleeves or you would intentionally cover up your tattoos to try to look more quote unquote professional. Yes. Is that changing? Like, do you see that as changing? Is it becoming more accepted to look however you want to look? I would, could, because I would have thought that at least in Hollywood, when you're making monster movies, that nobody would really care. You'd think that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it definitely things be getting better. It's really hard for me to tell because I do live in Los Angeles, so things are everybody just is weird here. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty. A lot of people out here have dyed hair, piercings, tattoos. You know, alternative clothing. It's sort of a hub for you know alternative lifestyles. So it's if anyone is going to be okay with tattoos, it's going to be here in LA. It's, um, uh, I but I do think things are changing. Uh, it's just. People, I, you know, old the old conservative people are slowly dying off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people, more and more people are getting them. I think uh, the media is changing too. The more people we see with tattoos, the more people end up with tattoos on screen and in movies and in TV shows. It's just sort of very slowly um, meriting throughout the culture. Yeah. Okay. But he- heavily tattooed women are still objects of curiosity like not as much heavily tattooed men for sure absolutely yeah. for sure my dad um, just pretends i don't have arms and legs anymore <laughs> oh. <laughs> there you go. shiri i know you wanted to ask you had a very specific question that i'm not gonna i do on. i do because <laughs> the the tattoo artist who did my arms picked up the same well, it's not even a hobby. It's a way of life. So I do follow you on Twitter. And I noticed that uh, you started powerlifting, powerlifting about a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Kara did that too. It's It blows me away. It's so cool. Um, how did you get started doing that? I love powerlifting. I'm so happy you asked me that. <laughs> it's like one of those, you know how every everybody has like one thing that they do for a living. And that's what everyone asks them about. And then they have this weird hobby that like, that's really what they want to talk about. I'm like, yeah, Chris from the Black Lagoon is great. Yeah, cool. Can we talk about powerlifting? Uh, and now the conversation uh, truly begins. <laughs> uh, I got started, uh, I started lifting about two years ago, but I wasn't really... I didn't really have uh, any guidance and I didn't really know what I was doing. And then uh, a friend of mine, uh, the author, Madeline Rue, she is a power lifter and I would always see her post. I'd be like, oh, that's so cool. And then I moved to the place where I currently live and I joined my current gym and I, uh, I go to the gym every morning at five o'clock and we have like a very dedicated crew of 5 a.m. weirdos who are always there. And we all know each other and we're all, we're all pals. And there was, there's a few power lifters there and I would see them doing it until finally one day I was like, Hey guys, can you show me how to do that? It just looks so cool. 
and I fell in love with it. I really, really did from go. I just uh, couldn't, I, I, I just, I, I've never, I'm not an athletic person. I've never really been good at anything that involves moving my body in any way. Um, until I started powerlifting and I finally found something that I really, really enjoy. And now I love going to the gym. That's so cool. <laughs> Are you, do you compete at all or do you just do it for fun? I don't compete currently. Uh, I don't have, I don't think I have enough time to dedicate to uh, getting good enough that I would feel comfortable competing. Uh-huh. Um, but I do love watching the competitions. I love watching people I know who do compete. Um, maybe someday if I become a very, very rich author and I have more time off, I will get into it uh, <laughs> because it, it, it does look super fun. But right now I'm very content to just compete against myself. Well, and I think it's cool too, because this is another sort of traditionally male space that women are starting to take up. Yeah, there's a huge, huge, huge female powerlifting community and it's really welcoming and it's really fun. And, you know, I mean, some of the, some of like the best powerlifting athletes out there are women and they're awesome. And I just couldn't love it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Could this um, be a, could this be a future book? Uh, you know what? Maybe I am really interested in it. And if there were, I, I found a subject or a topic or something to write about it, I would totally, totally be into it. <laughs> so um, you do also have a podcast. Speaking I of do. being incredibly busy, called Reading Glasses. Yes. Um, where you give reading advice, which I think is cool. I also write for Book Riot, so anything involving books. Oh, so you're books. a superhero. <laughs> she, she is the she is she is the fastest reader I I know. She reads like three thousand <laughs> books a year, whereas I'm struggling to get through like three. I'm such a slow reader, and she just breezes through them. That's still yeah, you exactly. a reader. <laughs> exactly. Um, where did the concept for that come from? Uh, so my co-host, Bria Grant, and I have been friends for a long time. And one day we were out to dinner with a friend of ours and we were talking about the best book light to read, to use in bed when you want to read and your significant other wants to sleep. And we were sort of bantering back and forth about what the best type of book light is. And our friend that we were out to dinner with said, man, you guys should make a podcast about this weird, nerdy stuff. And we kind of laughed about it. And then the next day, Bria texted me and was like, hey, maybe we should do that. <laughs> and that's where the idea of reading glasses began because we we really wanted to do a show that wasn't book reviews. It wasn't focused on books themselves, but rather reading, which is uh, a confusing distinction, but it's a really important one. Uh, we wanted to have a show that doesn't matter how you read, whether you're a physical book person or an e-reader or audiobook person and that no matter what you read whether it's comic books or romance novels or literary fiction that didn't matter it's really focused on the actual act of reading and reading culture and we loved the idea and started to develop it and we've been going for almost three years now it's pretty wild that's awesome what is the best piece of reading advice that you've ever gotten and then the best piece of advice of reading advice you've ever given the coolest piece of reading advice I've ever seen was a listener who wrote in to tell us about this cool book hack that she has 
where she is an e-reader and is always struggling when she goes to book signings because she doesn't want to go up and be like, hey, I read your e-book. I have nothing for you to sign. So what she does is takes a screenshot on her phone of the cover of the book, the cover of the e-book, and then gives it to the author to, you know, when you edit a, you, you can edit a, a photo on, on your iPhone to like draw mm-hmm. on it. So the author signs the cover of the e-book on the phone and then you have a screenshot of it. That's so cool. I was like, that's genius. You're living in year 3030. That is (laughs) next level genius. And I think the best uh, advice that me and Bria always give out is to uh, get get rid of things that you don't want to read and always consider yourself a reader. I think uh, there's a lot of people who are reluctant to think of themselves as readers or get involved in the bookish community because they only read one book a year or one book a month. And, you know, they get bogged down into this, like, oh, I'm reading Infinite Jest, but I hate it so much. And like, but they, what they really want to read is a comic book. Just like dump all that stuff, dump all the book guilt, all the book snootery, just read what you want when you want. And all of a sudden, you'll find that you'll want to read more, you'll want to get more involved in the bookish industry or the bookish community, depending on what side of it you're on. And we constantly get fan mail from people saying that we revitalize their reading lives because of those pieces of advice. That is awesome yeah, anything you, that gets people reading you gotta strip, exactly. you gotta strip away that guilt you know i mean oh, we, yeah. we've talked to so many authors i mean we've been doing the show for a long long time and we talked to so many authors and this has come up again and again especially when we talk to authors who work in graphic novels or comic books you know it's like i you still hear teachers and parents saying you know like i put that comic book down i want you to read a real book you oh, know. we hate the phrase hate real it. book. There's I no real it. books. There's no real reading. You just let it go. Let it go. <laughs> yeah, it's so frustrating. I was in the library one time. And, you know, when I go take my kids to the library, we just I bring a bag and we just fill it up. And then, you know, I need a forklift to get it home. And <laughs> Heck yeah. there was a mother who walked in with her kids. And she's like, this was so long ago now. But I think she said, you know, like... You're you're each allowed to get three books, but I don't want to see any comic books. Oh my you know, god! Like it was like that was like that was where she drew her line. Like you're not allowed Ugh. to read those. Terrible. Yeah, like you're just doing it all wrong, all wrong. People shouldn't complain when their kids are reading because exactly. their kids are reading. Yes. yes. So, so what, what are, are you yeah. reading right now? Uh, right now, I am reading a book called The Third Rainbow Girl uh, by Emma Copley something Berg. Gosh, sorry, it's not it's not in front of me, um, but it is a true crime book that just came out, and it is an examination of these two uh, murders that happened in West Virginia in the eighties, and how they have the effects of those have reverberated out in that community since then, and it is so so good. You um, you mentioned this earlier um, that your your next book is sold and you're working on it now, and. You know, we did a little sleuthing, and we know that it's called Girly Drinks, but can you talk to us at all about it? Absolutely. It's the history of women drinking. Yay! <laughs> it is the history of women drinking from when alcohol was invented until now, all oh over the world, God. in every society. It is how do you, so much fun. How do you research something like that? I'm sorry to interrupt, by, but... <laughs> by, by reading hundreds and hundreds of books. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, but where do you start? Like, what, So it's, it's from like the beginning of time? Yes. <laughs> Holy crap! <laughs> Yes, I've already read, you know, near probably at least 150 books for it. What? Yep. What, so, so what's the, okay, we're not going to like get into specifics, but like what's the most surprising thing you've learned so far? Is how much history there is. Um, when I started the book, I thought the beginning uh, that, you know, when 
me writing about the time when alcohol was invented um, was going to be just a short, tiny little intro chapter. But it turns out that women were the ones who first made alcohol. The first artistic depiction of someone drinking was a woman. The first deity that was uh, had to do with drinking was a woman. There was so much history there that I, it ended up becoming a whole chapter. Uh, and I was so surprised and so delighted to find out that women have, by and large, been the most important part of, of drinking in almost every society. Up to now, where there's a website and two essay collections called Moms Who Drink and Swear. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> do you have a rele- do you have a release date for that, or are you just working on it right now? Uh, it's due uh, spring of next year, so it probably people can expect it maybe winter of 2021 yeah. or oh spring of 2022. That sounds so amazing, though. <laughs> I'm, it's it's a blast to, to research and write. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. So, all right, um, we have taken up enough of your time. Shiri, take us out with a fun one. Okay. If you were putting together a post-apocalyptic survival team, which three monsters or horror figures would be on your must-include list for protection? For protection? okay. Not that you would need it, but, like, as members of your survival team. And not Universal Monsters? No, any monsters. Any monsters. Okay, any well, monsters. Wolf, Wolfman for sure, because he's very uh, versatile, very flexible. You know, it's going to be helpful to have someone who can be a human or a monster. Uh, Godzilla for sure. Um, during the, this nuclear post-apocalyptic wasteland, Godzilla is going to be like a fish in water. And he's he going to be... He would thrive. He's Yeah, exactly. He's going to be thriving. Uh, and then the last member of the team probably would have to be King Kong because he could, you know, you get tired from walking through this nuclear wasteland. He can carry you great protection, climb up things for you. Uh, He'd be a really strong member of the team. Amazing. Yeah. I think with King Kong and Godzilla at your side, you're going to, you're going to do okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're going to be fine. I'll be (laughs) (laughs) fine. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>